Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creativity. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. When I returned to Canada at the beginning of the pandemic after 13 years between New York and Los Angeles, it was a rush decision. I was not planning on staying long. I refused to make a geographical commitment, which is a bit of a pattern for me. Vancouver was a refuge in a dangerous moment, but I expected it to be an interlude between chapters or an extended layover between flights. What I hadn't expected was that I would fall back in love with the natural world here. The waterfalls, I would hike to, the ocean I grew up playing in that would host my swims throughout the summer, and even a quick dip on January 1st this year, the forest runs that would replace my spin classes, and the animals I'd begin to look for, all because this hectic world finally slowed down long enough for me to be a part of nature again. My stepdad is the exhibition designer at the Museum of Anthropology, which houses a remarkable collection of First Nations art. When I was five, my dad directed a documentary on the Haida people and their unique philosophy and consciousness, which took him to their lands with a camera and a young Alex in tow. The Haida are an indigenous people who have lived on their archipelago off the coast of British Columbia for over 14,000 years. They are revered for their incredible craftsmanship, from monumental totem poles to delicate carved jewelry, and just as unique as their artistry is their way of seeing. Their connection to the lands and the other creatures that inhabit them feels ancient in its gravitas. Respect for the majestic patience of trees, gratitude for the noble sacrifice of salmon, and an awakeness to face the cycles of life and death and the power of ancestry. Jim Hart, who is known to the Haida Nation as Chief Edensu, belonging to the Hereditary Chiefs Council, is one of the Northwest Coast's most prodigious artists. He was awarded the Order of British Columbia in 2003 and received a Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2013 and has exhibited internationally from the Louvre in Paris to a solo show in Singapore. 
One of the many reasons I was excited to speak with Jim was to gain an understanding of where creativity sits within Haida society, how it ties community together, and the role it plays in the preservation of culture and ancestral respect. It's a rare and special gift to learn about such a different way of life and how we could approach things a bit differently in our own society, especially in this moment when the time feels ripe for considered change in how we treat each other and in our relationship with the natural world. Jim is the chief of the Eagle Clan. He holds the name and hereditary title of his great-great-grandfather, Charles Edenshaw, and comes from a lineage of Haida chiefs who were carvers. As anthropologist Wilson Duff noted, no wonder there is an apparent correlation between artist and high rank in Haida society. The artist was the chief, the authority on Haida social things. It was his job to teach these things. I am honored and truly grateful to Jim for taking the time to talk to me so intimately about his artistic journey, his perspective on relating to the supernatural for inspiration, and the role of art in the healing of generational trauma. This was a profoundly moving conversation for me, and I hope that when you finish it, you'll be inspired to look at the trees again. Can you hear me, Alex? Yes. Hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? Doing well. You know, with this new life of ours. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a year, hasn't it? It's been crazy. New, brand new. You know what? It's when it first started, Alex. Uh, it was pretty well serious lockdown, and we made it home in March, towards the end of March, and uh, it was. It was like the closest we're ever going to get to the old days when we had no power and all that stuff, which is that kind of, you know, lockdown feeling. It was, it was interesting. It was, it was actually fun. Really. There's something kind of magical about it in its own way, isn't there? Yeah, well, there's lessons here, you know, it's total lessons and how we're treating our planet and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know if we're going to get it, though, because everybody wants to zoom on like normal and really we can't take it. The planet can't take it. Yeah, it feels like it's it's making us contemplate what does and doesn't work from a societal standpoint, which is interesting. But for a lot of us, when we've only known one way of living, even if we've traveled, we can forget that the society that we're used to is not the only way to live. I'm sure, obviously, you've had a very different experience, even just of how you've grown up. Well, it's true. And we're from the islands here, you know, and it's kind of nice because we're isolated anyway, in a sense. And so we fought hard to keep it off the islands, and we had a couple of blooms, and a bit scary, but we stopped it. It all stopped. It never spread. So you're in the islands now? Yeah, and it's beautiful. You know, we get the storms, wonderful storms, one after another, but today we have a, a nice, clear day. So Nice. It's been so many years since I've had the pleasure of actually seeing you in person, but my mom loaned me the beautiful bracelet you made for her for me to wear for the past few days while I've been preparing for our chat. So that's been really nice. The connection. Yeah. So to start by just to give some context, would you please tell me about your childhood and what it was like to grow up within the Haida Nation? Well, it was pretty amazing times. You know, I think back on it just about every day in a sense, just because it was such an amazing time to grow up and because it was fishing, you know, heavy fishing around the islands, up and down the coast. And then there's logging going on and there's canneries here. And so, you know, people work and it was, there was jobs for everybody all the time. 
So you could quit one job one day and be working on another job the same day or the next day. There was that many jobs around. You didn't have to worry about it. So I grew up in that period of time. And uh, so alcohol was a huge part of the whole show, you know, just because there was money all over the place. And not just natives, just everybody in general, mm-hmm. you know, all along. And it was just like heavy drinking all over the place. And the parties were huge. And as a kid growing up through that, you know, you see a lot of things. And then we experienced a lot of things. And so, well, we managed. I managed. I'm so thankful I made it through all that stuff. It was exciting times. My grandfather built boats, you know, big seine boats and stuff. There are heavy fishermen all the time. Every season they're out there. They'd get home just before Christmas sort of thing and get ready for spring and mm-hmm. gone. And so it was, it was exciting. And then... I never went to residential school, but my friends went to residential school. All my partners, you know, they would disappear as a youngster. I never knew what was going on. It took quite a few years for me to figure out where they were headed, you know, and then uh, what was going on with them. So I was lucky. I didn't have to go. And uh, so we carried on. It was exciting. Basketball, you know, growing, learning about our art our history, our culture, uh, getting involved and then starting to bring things about and being part of that and having a voice. And, you know, we're, we're not that many people, but exciting times. It was all new. How big was your community when you were growing up? Well, just about 340-something people. And it always stayed about that. Someone head to Vancouver, but only like one or two. Someone had come home and then people died. So we never grew. We were never... Our, was always on the edge of, you know what I mean? Disappearing in a sense. And then um, we started growing the numbers uh, about, so, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we started, numbers started increasing. Mm-hmm. We had a big epidemic of smallpox. Right. History, and that wiped us out. Like w- these islands, Haida Gwaii is Haida country. And the whole of I- uh, Haida Gwaii is our was our homelands for thousands of years. So they say over 14,000 years. And so we knew these lands, right? And then as contact happened, they realized we were too entrenched in our own lands. And so they come up with a plan to give us smallpox and they introduced it to us down in Victoria and we brought it home and that wiped us out. So the survivors in the north end was just over 300, and the survivors in the south end of the islands were just over 200. Wow. And then up in Alaska was just over 200. And the numbers stayed like that for years and years and years. But now we're in the growing period, and uh, which is nice, but still not that many people. And uh, we're still two main communities on the islands. And But we get to roam our lands and learn about our history and stuff and, you know, the old days and what was going on there and how we traveled and up and down. And you know how it is now. We have our phones, with instant communication, like around the world. It's like in those days, it was Very instant communication with shamans, you know, doing their traveling and stuff like that. Otherwise, it was canoes up and down the coast, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was slow, but fast in those days. And anyway, I mean, exciting. We're here today. Things happening. Now this COVID's got a lid on everything in the sense of, uh, giving us a chance to reflect and we're holding people off the lands here and, and trying not to let it you know come over here and spread amongst us and we work hard at that and we're worried about people that have to go off for medical reasons and come home and 
you know, we isolate again. And, you know, 14 days, in the end, 14 days is a long time to be sitting around. You hear stories of people stuck in their apartments for months, you know, yes. not being alone. That's scary. Well, it's it's definitely a time that makes you want to be with your family for companionship. That's true. Well, with me and my work, I'm an artist, right? Mm -hmm. So it actually helps me with focus. It like zeroes you in a little bit more. And so I just hunker down and get get working and plan out other projects and things like this. It's actually uh, my for me, it's it's always on the uptake. It's good for productivity. Yeah, and also people are supporting us, you know, and they're putting in nice orders for, you know, and getting nice commissions. And so it, it keeps me busy. I, My projects, though, aren't quick. None. Right. The only thing that's quick is maybe making a ring, you know, like uh, carving a ring or something like this. And, but otherwise, I'm into projects for a year, two years, three years kind of thing. Wow. I have a crew. I, short, I shrunk up my crew. I've only got two people working for me right now, three sometimes. Usually there's about five or six of us working away, and but I've uh, cut out a couple of the guys and just because of COVID and uh, I don't know. Safety just, and everything. Well, it's connecting with each other, and I don't want to get that disease or spread it to my mom, you know, my mother for and sure. stuff. And so trying to be more careful. For sure. I'm I'm so curious because in Western culture, the the role of the artist is often thought of as more of a solitary figure. Art can feel like a really individualistic pursuit. And, you know, parents might tell their children, don't make art, you'll never make any money. But I'd imagine that within Haida society, the attitude towards creativity would be very different. What are some of the responsibilities of the artist within within the culture and sort of the rank and social hierarchy? And how does that fit in? In the old days, uh, uh, being a carver, an artist was one of the highest things there was in, in our society. And then the chief was high and a shaman, you know. But if you're a good carver, you were sought out by other uh, villages and stuff. Mm -hmm. Great totem pole. And all our art was made for for a reason, in a sense, we used our or a spoon, or, or bowls, or canoes, or totem pole. They're all connected to our way of life, and it was all part of our life. We never separated it. It was all part of who we were. And so we still kind of, I, you know, I make big totem poles. Uh, we finished up one there for UBC, the reconciliation pole. Yes. Now it's over two and a half years in the making, and that was six of us working on it full time, you know, and we went down there and finished it up at UBC and then had a nice pole raising. And it was, it was a tough project. Uh, a lot of my projects are like that. It's just because of the content. And that one had to do with uh, residential schooling and all that background, you know, and bringing it forward. And so I met a lot of people that went to the, to the schools and all the memories they had. And they're sharing some of them with me. And it made it pretty darn tough to, to work on the project. I'm sure. To actually set it aside to keep working, you know. And, was pretty tough but you're involved like that you know close close with the people close with my crew one tree a job that would take two three years and so you're involved with your crew uh, three or four or five or six people you know and then uh, you get pretty close and have some fun along the way and, and make things happen and so you know, here I'm always, I, I do projects, smaller projects, uh, but I always have people involved with me. Mm -hmm. It's about teaching them too, right? And this mm -hmm. is where it comes from. For me, it comes from our lands here. 
So we're connected to the the spirits in a sense, and to or uh, like the killer whales and and things like that. You know, we still have that connection. The salmon, we're all part of that, and we touch all that every day. We're part of that, and it's really kind of cool to realize that. Mm-hmm. You know, you live it so much, but then when you leave, you start looking at it from another perspective, and then you realize we're still part of it all. Yeah, where others are seeking it out and they want to be part of it, or get close to you as a person from the lands, you know, they, they come and they gravitate towards you and they want to feel that from you. And so it's, they're always looking for it, you know, it's there for everybody. They just have to make sacrifices in their life to get close to it again, you know, and, mm-hmm. and give up some stuff to like for me with uh, electronics, that's a, quite a distraction. And I try to hold it at bay so that it's not so heavily a part of my life. Because I still want to be connected to the spirits, to the lands, to the waters. You know, it's just, I need that. If electronics take over, you become that. And it's like, huh, I don't want that ruining my life like that. So, And they're, and they're built to be addictive, right? Yeah, it's, it's totally addictive. Yeah. You see everybody with the phone stuck to their face, you know, and walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Everybody, even walking across the street, they're like that. And I, so if I see that and if I'm in the city, I honk like hell. <laughs> make jump, you know, and like you know, gotta watch out here. Yeah, and look at the trees, and you know, be yeah. be a part of the place that you're in, as opposed to experiencing everything through a screen. Well, it's it's so addictive and so distracting. Yeah, but that connection can help you, but not to be addicted like that. It's like that's nope. We got to learn how to talk to each other. Yeah, and keep that keep that open too, like physically mm-hmm. rather than like texting and stuff. Mm-hmm. I've heard you say that that the Haida language is images, not words. So I'd imagine that part of the reason that the role of the artist is so important within society is also, you know, partially for cultural survival and passing down stories and all of that, right? Yep. Well, while we have people at home here struggling really hard to uh, to save the language, mm-hmm. you know, I have mother here; she knows the language, but. Not too many of the older folks left. You know, they're all getting on and um, they're all on the edge of leaving us in that sense. And and so people are working pretty hard with the language to keep it alive. I'm not part of that in a sense. I keep the art alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to know the language when I was young, but I, it left me in grade five. I remember in grade five, I, was dream- I used to dream in it in Haida mm-hmm. and then it left me one night it just left me and never came back but the other night not too many weeks ago I had a dream and there's Haida in there and that's the first time I hear wow. you know Haida is being spoken in my dream again so it's coming back maybe I don't know you know just the language is your connection to the lands you know and everything and because uh the images that are created when you speak the language and it's a real funny language you know it's like the images that you create with the language and you laugh and laugh and laugh because it's so so funny but we've also translated that into english in a sense it's just how we handle the language and the images we produce with the language so it's a sort of the same we just kind of brought it into english right that that style but but if you know the language it's way more right on right you can connect to it a lot more yeah to everything Mm-hmm. And it's because you brought up here, right? You know, you know the tides and the storm. I was talking about the storms. 
our storms are so heavy and, and just about every day for, you know, months and months. And I went down to the city and when I was down in the city, it took about two years to realize it didn't blow down there. Like in Vancouver. When you first moved. Yeah. Wow. And it was like, like oh, it doesn't blow down here. <laughs> you grew up with it and you expect it. It's all part of you. And, and then it was like uh, amazing to be disconnected from that feeling. I bet. What was it like to move to the city after growing up in, in such a special community for so long? Well, it was scary, intimidating, mm-hmm. scary as hell, actually. I, I had to learn how to get on an elevator and, and learn how to use one and make it move. And But then you're in there with people sometimes, and I'd be scared and sweating like heck, and I would scare them and <laughs> would make it worse. And I had to learn everything. Yeah. Like the escalators, you know, you jump on one and it's it first time and it's like, holy smoke. But it was all like that. And our people weren't so adventuresome in those days, you know. They'd hit certain areas and hang out and that was it. And hardly go to the beach, you know. But now we're, we're venturing all over the place. We learn to travel more so, you know, visiting other countries and, you know, enjoying ourselves out there in the winter and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. So we're a lot more adventuresome today. But in those days, there was hardly anybody moving around. Even going out to the Museum of Anthropology, it was a huge, huge deal just to break your pattern and go out there and spend the time in an institution, but then the, just look at the old pieces. I, I went to the city and started working for Bill Reed there yes. uh, on the race in the first men. That was my introduction. Wow. But it was scary for him. It took me a couple of years to actually try to drive a car down there because I, you know, the red, the, the orange, and the green light, and I couldn't figure out geez you're gonna what about I'm making a mistake and driving at the wrong time and I'm assuming it's not like you had access to movies or any other cultural touchstones growing up that would have even shown you what the city would feel like it's true movies were the only thing that would kind of show you and we didn't have very many movies we didn't have a movie theater up here right but we had tv and so tv became a huge thing one channel in those early days Mm -hmm. that was it I remember seeing that that sculpture you mentioned, the Raven and the First Man, for the first time when I was a kid, and I remember being really impacted by it. It's such a incredible piece and sparks the imagination in such an amazing way. What was it like coming down and working with Bill? Well, it was tough, tough all the way around because they were not so trusting of me. Uh, some people were at mm-hmm. the museum there. And but Bill had put the word out to keep an eye on me. He was scared of me coming in drunk and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, "What? I don't even, you know, he never makes drinking with work." And right. but it took a while for trust to be built and and stuff. But being in a new place like the museum was fairly new in those days. And uh, it, but to us, it's an institution, and we were brought up to believe that all these museums stole all our belongings from up here. Right. But in the end, I started finding out that our people sold a lot of it. You know, they did take the odd piece here and there, but not not too many compared to the ones that have been sold to the museums by family, family members or families or two collectors who are collecting from museums. And so you start figuring it all out later. And I was dealing with the, the people there at the museum. There's a lady that was kind of hard on me. She was a German lady that uh, was working for the museum, second in command, and she treated it like that command, you know, and she treated me like trying to command me around and stuff. And it was like, so it was kind of tough to to deal with her in a sense. And then 
they had an unveiling there with Prince Charles once, and uh, I went to the to the event. You know, had a nice suit and all that stuff. And it changed her mind about me. But after that, it was too late. The damage was done. <laughs> this was at the Museum of Anthropology. Yeah, and yeah. Early, but Bill, Bill McClendon was a guy that was really a nice fellow there, and he he caught on to me and. He tutored me along all the way to the end, you know, until they passed away. We used to get along really well, and I enjoyed him all the time. Whenever we got together, I had lots of fun, you know, mm-hmm. laughing and joking and showing me what he was doing, and I was showing him what I was up to. He helped me in my career totally, all the way from the very beginning there to the very end, because I could run to him, ask him questions, check things out in the museums or whatever, and he'd call me in to look at old pieces that they were getting and things, and we'd have a lot of fun. I enjoyed looking at our ancestral pieces. I still do. I mean, I love them. That's the whole thing, man, is getting closer to our ancestral pieces. Those guys are amazing. Absolutely. And and I guess that is one of the upsides of museums is that their ability to preserve a piece that is, say, in wood and, you know, might decompose within nature. We get this incredible longevity with these pieces that we wouldn't necessarily get if museums didn't work to preserve them right it's true they, they look after the pieces and uh, i appreciate that to no end you know it's like we lost a lot of pieces a lot of our pieces are wood right and mm-hmm. wood doesn't last those little worms of beetle boring beetles get in there and yeah. follow the whole thing right out fires house fires are destructive you know destroy everything you know, have things tucked away in the old days the person how it was done was the most responsible person in the family was in charge of looking after the family heirlooms okay. and the family is your, you know, the card pieces or whatever. And then some of them would disappear because of the uh, fires that burned them up and stuff. But also what happened was collectors started coming by and then family members that were looking after them would actually sell them and uh, they didn't have the right to do that. So it caused a lot of trouble, all that kind of stuff throughout our history and, now it's uh the majority of it's collected up uh, we don't have too much here at home anymore people don't have any the odd piece here and there tucked away in secret sort of thing mm-hmm. and then we have a small nice museum here in skidding kai we call it the kai the center in there and they house nice old artifacts and then some modern today stuff and it's really quite a nice space down there but that's it we don't have any more and all the rest is out there in all the museums and collectors and throughout the world, you know, in New York, Chicago, Germany, Sweden, all, Helsinki, and St. Petersburg, just all over the place. And they had these wonderful collectors collecting up the old, ancient. So we have to travel. Yeah. We have to leave our own lands to see our stuff. But photos now, you know, photos and museums are online and they have their stuff out there. And you can study the pieces that way, see them, all that. Mm Mm-hmm. So you were working with Bill, and then when did you feel, how did you feel about moving on to do your own work? When did you know that was the right time? Well, it's working heavy with Bill there for well, four years. And then he was taking on a project, like a canoe project. And we're working on a, on a, I was working on some clay for him. This canoe project was coming up, and I kind of didn't want to be part of that because I could see stuff coming with it. Uh, kind of trouble amongst us in a sense so I didn't want to be part of that and then I was right at the time of I was starting to think about going out on my own 
and leaving bill. And so I figured, okay, if I go out on my own, I'd make about the same amount of money as I'm making with bill by being paid hourly working for him. And I figured, okay, it's, it's my time. It's mm-hmm. my turn to do this. And Bill tried really hard to hang on to me. And he made it pretty tough on me to, to leave him, but it was fine. I left him and I had to stay away from him totally. I couldn't even go near him because he was like, suck you in and you're part of his mechanism, you know, and the energy is be part of it. And so I had to just kind of back away and watch him totally from a distance. I couldn't even let him know that I was watching him. It's like his energy was so strong. I just so I worked on myself and watched from a distance. But he'd invite me along and the different trips they're doing, canoe trips are going up the the Seine in France there and and then going up uh he did a couple more canoe trips and he'd invite me along and stuff. But I, I had a crew, my own crew then and was doing my own stuff and I couldn't just up and leave like that. And mm-hmm. so I could never really join him. Even in the even when they're bringing his remains down to Tanu to place it and where his mother was from and that uh, I couldn't even join him on the canoe going down there. I was, they made a spot for me and I wanted to and but in the end I just couldn't take the time. I was just too darn pressed to do my work. So yeah. But he was a great influence in me. You know, he was huge actually. And uh I learned, you know, I learned some tricks from him, but I learned what not to do in the outside world a lot, you know, mm-hmm. by watching him. And so he taught me how to survive in the city. And yeah. that was huge. And then friends, special friends, keep me out of the cracks, you know. And mm-hmm. I was so scared of falling in the cracks. I worked hard to not fall in the cracks. And But friends, friendships would, that was enough to hold me out of the cracks. Yeah. So to break the old patterns and stuff. And, Hang out at the Museum of Anthropology. I, I was I was a hanger on the Ford Indian. You know, you hang around and <laughs> learn from the old pieces. But also the Bill McLennan and Michael Ames was the director in those days, and he was a great guy and uh, quite open for all that. So they helped me out a lot in my career. So I'm quite happy to be part of that. You know, what was the first work that that you started working on individually? Well, I always had something on the go, even when I was working for Bill, you know, I'd be working on my own stuff in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then early in the morning, I'd take off to go get Bill to go to work with him. And then, so I've always had that going on, you know, bringing in extra cash and stuff. And so I can't really remember. I, I was working on a big mask that opened up and uh, things like that. And I don't know jewelry oh that's what it was so when i left bill i i moved into the jewelry area i moved in with a couple of jewelers in granville island and i was learning to jewelry technique mm-hmm. so it was fun to to work with them and i was applying it to my work and and uh i'd really like to uh, complete that you know the jewelry stuff because i never finished uh learning as much as i should and could have sort of thing and it was so wonderful because those guys construct they build uh wonderful jewelry pieces and that jewelry stuff is the the stuff that you see in the high-end market you know out there in magazines and stuff like that these guys can make all that growing up i never thought of people making jewelry it was just something of life you know our jewelry we carve bracelets and carve necklaces and things like that but we didn't construct like that you know like build stuff you know Mm. you know what i mean it's different and yeah. I wanted to bring that into our style of work and 
What what would you still like to learn specifically within jewelry? Just how to construct. Yeah, how to build it. You know how to build something mm-hmm. from you know build it into because you're dealing with a miniature world. Everything's yeah. We use the same tools but miniaturized, and mm-hmm. you're dealing with metal and soldering, and it's like welding metal. You know, you're soldering pieces together and things like that, and you're polishing and creating these wonderful things and inlaying work. Mm-hmm. But in carving, it's you're bigger in the bigger world of big tools like carving totem poles and you're moving wood and really physical. And jewelry, the hardest work is uh, pulling wire. You know, you're making wire or running a rolling mill to make metal thinner or you know what I mean, into plate or. That's much more delicate. Yeah. I was actually able to see the raising of a totem pole, I think when I was maybe four or five years old up in Haida Gwaii. And I remember just being completely awestruck and enchanted can you explain what a totem pole is for for those who haven't seen one before well we have different types of totem pole but the main one we use mostly today in the outside world and stuff is the house frontal pole style mm-hmm. hollow back and sometimes we'll leave them solid and a lot heavier when you're dealing with solid totems and the poles they're carved for different reasons. You know, the figures are on there, different meanings and stuff like this. In the old days, it was your record of who you were as a person and some of your fa- wife's family's crests on there too, paying honor to them and things like that. So you could come in and see who, what household you wanted to go out in front of to go into their house because the, the totem pole told them who it was and in, in your history. And so today we get commissions to do things where we make these, Nice totems with different stories. Like I play with the water, the land, the air, you know, creatures from the water, whales, uh, seals, and uh, sea otters, and all, all the supernaturals from the water. And then lands, you get bears and wolves and different creatures, you know, and then the airs, you get eagles and ravens and all that kind of stuff. And then you get the supernatural world. So we got a lot to choose from and put together. And that was our teaching, our learning, uh, all these stories. And it created a attitude to life and showed you the way it should be and, you know, not what not to do and what to do. And it answered questions in your life, these stories. So poles we make and we use people. We like to raise them by hand, like using lots of people and ropes. And when we do that, you get a lot of people together, you lay out your ropes, you have a conductor, one person that conducts the whole show, and everybody listens to that person. So in the end, you raise this totem pole together, and the different ropes, you're on one rope and you're pulling like heck, and you raise the pole, and in the end, it's it's a real spiritual movement, right? You're, You're doing something together, it's like one mind of everybody, and quite an amazing thing to be part of mm-hmm. and to feel that it's just amazing everybody just feels so high from it after and so it's a lot of fun when you have the celebration too you know the food and dancing and stuff and the energy just carries on it's just all part of it you know and you think of it in the old days the old days it would take a week or two to do all this stuff you know right but today compress it into one day sort of, or two days and that's the extent you know we don't go on for days and days and days like the old we're too busy now yeah that's it we watch the watch you know we look at the clock and set this and set that you know we start at two uh, i don't care i'm off <laughs> maybe an hour or two 
And then I say, okay, we're off an hour or two after 10,000 years. What <laughs> hour too late or whatever, you know, it's like we, we do it when we're ready and everything's set. You know, we, we use that as a guideline, but mm-hmm. it's not, we start at two and that's it. It doesn't work like that. Right. And we bring that forward too. It's not the whole show. But I tell you though, for guys that are doing interviews and watching with cameras and stuff, it throws them all off. So it's not nice that way. But but still, I'm not there for that. I'm not there for them. You know, we do our thing and that's it. Yeah. How do you go about sourcing materials for polls that big? Well, this last poll, the reconciliation poll, is a huge, huge. And that I went through four trees, three trees. We looked at, and I had logs. I ordered these trees. I thought they were going to make it, and ordered them. And th- three of them, they all I get them to the site here where I work, and in the end, they, they're too small. Something wrong with them. I, so I called them, used them for other projects. Mm-hmm. And so my son and I and my wife are wandering around out in the woods. There, we were looking. It took me over a year to find that tree. Actually, wow. found one finally and we went up and checked it all out and it looked good and so we fell it and it ended up being the tree and so they're out there yet and but we're we're cutting them down just as fast in a sense too and we have over 50 percent of our lands islands here protected now so that the cedars are there and that but we still are involved in the logging of the lands now and stuff and we're trying to save as many of the big cedars as we can because they're hundreds of years old hundreds that one was going on to 800 years old and wow when you think about the history of the timeline of our history that recorded history now and where that sat within that you know when it started growing and what was going on throughout history and all that stuff well especially with with a with a pole that was that much tied to a specific period in in your your history as a nation it's in, it's incredible that you chose a tree that has been around longer and seen more than than any of that no, no you're right then you feel a little bad you know these trees lasted this long and through whatever thick and thin of of its life course and then i come along but i i say a prayer for them and and do a little ritual and i don't know if it helps because i learned a lot more about trees now they they're doing great studies on them and what trees are doing for each other and they help feed each other and things like that and they look after their own seedlings first and things like that and they communicate and and then you you come in there and but if they're going to cut it down I want to come in there and get a tree from that area especially and make good use of it rather than just toothpicks or something like that you know? <laughs> yeah Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What is the viewpoint on sticking quite strictly to known myths and stories and how does that allow for adding your own perspective and style and maybe some modern elements within the work? It all has to relate to us as a, as a people, Haida people, and uh, being connected to the seas and to the lands and to the airs and how we think about things. So if I play around with a modern idea, it always has to have that background behind it. So it's got a double meaning, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It always has to be connected like that. I can't just do a, a, something that's too modern. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't feel right about it. But we are living today. It depends on, you know, I'll create something that's for us today also. But we still have that connection, you know what I mean? I don't want to sever that. You know, I, I, it's all about that. When I create something, I want my ancestors to be happy. I want that connection there. And so I do reach into our ancestral ways a lot and uh, bring that forward. It's actually my job to be part of that, you know, help bring that forward and carry on. Because those guys created amazing stuff in the past and we're doing it again today. And uh, But those guys were the masters. They were so great. And then the smallpox and all that's mm-hmm. the new world's kind of severed it for quite a long time and there was it was still happening and never never got cut right off and now there's us that are growing up today and bringing it forward and trying to keep the meaning to it you know what i mean and, and keep that connection going and so i i always want to be happy for our ancestors and make them happy you know i need that what do you feel like is the is the big source of all that inspiration that has touched upon so many different generations oh it's the connection mm-hmm. it's the connection to the beasties out there you know our our stories uh, and uh, i'll tell you a quick story so and it's it's a true story a modern story of home here so there there's one of our people that passed on and they're bringing his body down to the house for the last day for the last viewing and being with us remains for that day and it was a beautiful sunny calm beautiful hot day this was in our village in our town uptown is Masset, uh, new Masset, which is like three miles away and uh, there's one of our seine boats in in the floats there in the dock main dock tied up and uh, one of our guys was jumping off the hatch to jump down to climb up 
off the boat onto the float there. And he slipped and his head banged a, a cleat where he tied a rope up. And, he, and so they rushed him up to the hospital. And his brother was down here in the village and he was rushing up to the hospital. But he died in an hour. Mm. He just passed on. So they were bringing down the remains to the, of that other fellow to the household. And three killer whales came in. And they hung around outside the front of the house there. And they just hung around, you know. And they just up and down and they were there. And then they took off up the inlet to where that boat was. And then they hung around out in front of that boat in the dock there and, and paying respects there. Then they came back down because the people were still dealing with the remains at the other house, bringing it into the house. And they came back down to the house again. Then they hung around in front of the house, paying the respects again. Then they headed out. And, you know, all the people were watching this. And it's like the connection. You know, they're still connected to us. And we like to think we're connected to them, but we're not connected to them as strong as we were were in the old days because we talk to them today. But in the old days, we did stuff for them and that too, right? And they helped us through our history. So it's that wonderful connection to our lands and, and what's going on, you know. And they remember that stuff. And the eagles do and the ravens do. You know what I mean? And it's just wonderful to be yeah. part of that. So the, the connection to the to the universal energy is, is what brings yeah. the inspiration in. Well, and then the, what our ancestors created as part of that, you know, mm-hmm. and how they did it, and brought, where they brought the art form, you know, the art form is, is us, it's all part of us, and we never really separated it like that, you know, we did, uh, we come up with this commercial stuff, of, I do stuff for commercial, making a living, mm-hmm. but I like to have it all connected and mean something real, like for real, right? Yeah. And some of those those incredible things that were made by your ancestors for celebrations and dances, which were often i guess just lit by fire probably really impacted yep. carving techniques and all of that just based on the technology of the age as well that's right and it was all part of the supernatural you know that you're brought into the supernatural world and like you're saying the light was from the fire was our light in the big houses when we we're dancing mm-hmm. around the fire and doing different things and so that spiritual supernatural thing was real you're a part of all that mm-hmm. you'd have spreading the eagle down around and it's floating around in the evening you know in the event and that put you in another cosmos too right here in the supernatural world so you're all part of that and you're doing all your acts are in respect to mother nature like our our creator right and so it's pretty cool to be part of that you know? yeah that's life. Yeah. We're all in there between the water and the forest and us as human beings. And mm-hmm. Talking about those dances, I know that you constructed the only freestanding dance screen in the world at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Can you explain a bit about what a dance screen is and, and tell, tell me a bit about that project? That was a, a wonderful project. It actually stands in the Audain Art Museum in Whistler. Yes. We finished it in the, the Vancouver Art Gallery. Right. And then it was taken apart and and then put up in the museum once they finished it up in Whistler and stood it up there. But it was a wonderful project. It was a project for Michael Audain and, and for a wall of his. And then in the end, he 
created a museum. He wanted, I guess he had a, the idea of making a museum and housing his collection plus other arts in there. And it was really all his stuff that he put in there. Mm-hmm. And um, he put the wall, this wall, in a section in that museum that houses the ancestral pieces. So this is the only real modern piece. But if you look at the wall, it's a beautiful thing. I, in my mind, I, I, it's quite deep in carving. It has a lot of depth to it. But the content is about trying to bring awareness to pulling people's thoughts to thinking about the salmon and what's going on with salmon, you know, the wild salmon today. And they're, they're in stress of, of all sorts because of the fish farms that are out there and, and the waters, you know, and things like that. And they're, they're adding a lot of problems to the life of the salmon. And then we're fishing, sports fishing, uh, the catch and release program is killing off so many salmon. Mm-hmm. We're just hammering away on the salmon all the time. And, and there's places now that aren't getting salmon. And it's horrendous to think that salmon aren't coming back because of what we're doing to them, you know. And it's horrendous. We're all here on the BC coast in Alaska and down into the, the States there because of salmon and the plentiful return of the salmon every year, you yeah. know. And there's different salmons, different times. So it was a huge food supply, food source for us. And so we had our rituals for them. and and to ensure their return of them and things like that. But we're fishing them out. We're doing stuff to destroy their habitat. And it's like, we got to smarten up, mm-hmm. look after them. Yeah. They looked after us for thousands of years. You know, we need to pick up our, our shoes and do something meaningful for them. Yeah. Trying to. We're working as a nation. The Haida people here are working with the sports fishermen, trying to get them to stop that catch and release stuff. Mm-hmm. Coming up with another program, a way of catching fish and making it more less damaging to the salmon. Fish enhancement programs would help, you know, things like that. What an important story to to include in in such a beautiful piece of art. It's it's special that there's that relationship, like you were saying earlier, of art kind of reinforcing the things that we also need to be paying attention to right now. Yeah, I. That was a project for four, four of us for like three and a half years. Wow. That must be tough on your body. Do you have a physical practice to stretch everything out? Well, what saved my butt on all this stuff is yoga. Yeah. I was doing hot yoga, moksha. Moksha, no, it's a, another name for it. No, Moto, Moto. Moto, yeah. And anyway, it's, it's beautiful. It's in a hot room and it cured my back problem. Just toughens you up slowly and it just enables you to reach out there and work away for hours you know and just strengthens you up so i once i got on to yoga and realized what it was doing for me and as a medicine mm-hmm. i started promoting that to everybody i said this is the best money you're going to spend on yourself yeah. go to yoga classes do it <laughs> save me and so i'm so giving her heck and i and i don't feel physically bound you know and I, but I haven't been doing yoga for a while. And, you know, this, this COVID's set in, so I can't get to any classes. And mm-hmm. I'm not disciplined to do it on my own, which is really upsetting. Uh, I just, I need to be in a class where I'm with people because it forces me to do the moves and yeah. carry them up. And the energy is different. I love it. 
I know. I miss, I miss that energy of, of being in a class of people exercising. It's such a, something that you would never think about missing in your life, but it does have even not on the same level, but when you were talking about raising a totem pole, that feeling of oneness and moving together as a team, there's something really tribal and special about that. It's true. And then you come out of there, you've done something. Yeah. You've done something for yourself, you know, and it's just so nice. Yeah. Lovely. It's spiritual too. So that's, Absolutely. Quite happy with that. You know, I'm, I still, I'm, in fact, I'm planning a studio next door to our house up here. There's an old building there and it's falling down, falling apart. And I want to replace it with a modern, more upgraded style of a workshop. I want to still keep the feeling of our, of our creativity in, another, in that sense. But I also want to build in, a, I'm hoping to do another story in there with uh, yoga like make the create a space for yoga classes to be helped cool yeah I'm, I'm excited about that idea build it right in it's like a, a learning center in the sense of yeah in our work and then doing yoga too and stuff like like medicine right yeah Art is medicine, you know it definitely is you mentioned earlier the reconciliation pole that you carved, which was erected at the University of British Columbia, I believe, in 2017. For anyone who doesn't know this part of Canada's history, in the late 1880s, the Canadian government decided that they wanted to assimilate First Nations children by removing them from their families and placing them in these horrific boarding schools, which broke up the kinship, which is the social fabric of Haida culture. And countless children died due to the conditions. And I say countless because they actually stopped recording it. And the last residential school wasn't closed until like 1996. Yeah, that's true. Actually, somewhere around Whitehorse, you know, the last one. Yeah, and it's wild because I didn't learn about the residential schools when I was in school in Canada. And I think similarly to how the U.S. is coming to terms with the realities of the systemic racism that has stemmed from slavery, I think history needs to be exposed and acknowledged and taught and discussed so that we can learn from it and ensure that those patterns of thinking don't survive within our societies. You're you're right. Yeah, what what was that process like? I you know, I was reading about it. I've seen the pole and the copper nails that you used, all of the different the different ways of describing that period. I you know, you grow up and you start understanding that these stories are true, that you know, what they're telling you and meaning that you start feeling the impact mm-hmm. in their life. Then you there was people that were drinking all the time, all the time. They'd come around you and this kind of raise heck and they're kind of in your face and stuff. And then, well, like another older person, that's because they went to residential school and didn't really sink in when I first started hearing that. And as time went on, I started realizing that's what it was. Yeah. And I started realizing these guys were acting out their life in that way. And mm-hmm. they went through a hell of a lot. And then you start hearing... I started hearing about the, the kids that died at these schools. Yeah. And what was happening was I was starting to hear people talk about their residential schools and that more and more. And, but they weren't talking about the kids that died mm. at these schools. And I wasn't hearing much about that at all. And so when I had a chance to say stuff to people, I would always bring up the fact that so many kids died going to these schools. And yeah. I'd do it all the time. 
And I was told by someone close to me from the outside world that I shouldn't be talking about that so much because it's getting turning people off. And I said, I don't care. Yeah. I said, they got to hear it. They got to hear this. This is part of the history that we went through, not just Haida's. It was all the natives from all across Canada. Yeah. The Eskimo, Inuits up north, you know what I mean? The Eskimo and the, and the Alouettes and stuff. And anyway, we all went through this and lots of people died. Kids were brought forward to call in the, during the night to come forward to dig graves. The bigger kids would dig, have to dig the graves for these people that passed on. The bigger girls would have to wrap them up in a, like a sheet and then they place them in these graves and bury them and the boys uh, uh, get paid some money sometimes you know for doing that and but it was like nighttime you know they, they were burying their friends yeah then they would have to go back to bed <sighs> and live with that you know and it's like but i uh started looking into numbers from the different people and there's a guy i met out in ottawa and he talked about a couple of guys got interested in trying to figure out how many kids died going to these schools and they come up with a number of 55,000 oh and so I started talking about that and then I started talking to others that went to these schools and they knew where the grave still they're alive today and they know where these graveyards are where they're not marked and they and they're in different areas and you know stuff like that and unmarked graveyards and things like this that was because of the kids that were dying at these schools and there i stopped we we were putting nails in that pole i stopped at well, about sixty-eight thousand copper nails in the totem pole and i had people nailing for weeks weeks three weeks more nailing away steady every day hammering nails into the into the residential school and then up in the upper part into the robes of the of the man and woman. So there was one there was one nail for for every child. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I stopped there, and there's more than that actually. But the numbers, I don't think you'll ever really know how many kids actually died. But it was more than that, and it's like when you start thinking about it, that's horrific, mm-hmm. man. Like how many kids at these schools passed away, and for what reason? You know, they're abused totally. It's just an awful scheme to to get rid of the natives of the country and to break down family, you know, and, and that was all part of it. That was all well thought out, yeah. the plan, how to initiate this. And it was part of that smallpox, giving us smallpox, all about wrecking our, our customs and people, you know, of, of the country, the different tribes. I mean, we're different tribes. We're not the same as that tribe over there. That's another tribe. Mm-hmm. We don't think the same you know we're all connected to mother nature and and to our creator and stuff but we also had different ways of approach you know so we're not all the same and then they're trying to lump us together like that and think of us as because we're indians you know what i mean and they're wiping us out with that kind of attitude and so i always try to bring that forward and i put it in the poll and to bring that forward that's a big part of it all you know, and how many kids passed away. They won't go near it in the records. They say, at the most, they'll say it's like 6,000 kids died going to these schools. Wow. And then the, the museum at, in, in Ottawa, the new the CMC, but it's Harper changed the name. They put in there and the and tags on the wall was just over 3,000. And it's like, no, man, these guys are 
they they're scared to go near the real numbers. Yeah. Yeah, they're still they're still erasing their tracks. Yeah, it's true. And they won't go near it. It's like, nope, that's not right. And the guy that went across the country doing research and and residential school survivors and that was a native fellow. He headed a group, I forget his name, he was quite a famous guy for doing this work. And he handed in the numbers of over 6,000 to the guy that was sitting there as a recorded thing. But he said, there may well have been more than 10 times this amount. Mm -hmm. And so he knew there were more, but on, on record, that was all that was showing. So he handed it in saying that. And it's true, there was well more than that. So he knew there's more than, but it's just, you know, I guess it's not recorded in their ways. And but we record them. You know what I mean? We remember them. Yeah. Uh, so it's something you don't want to let go. And so you want it in the school system. Now our people are working in the school system now about history and stuff. And they want this included in the history of, of Canada too, right? It has to be. Yeah. Yeah. And once they learn how to accept it, we move forward, you know, we move forward together. So we're not doing that today in that sense. We're trying to move forward and we want to be part of what's what's happening in this world and the country. And our people are getting more and more educated now through the systems. And, and we have a lot of bright people out there and doing things. And so we want to be part of it. Yeah. We don't want to be like that, you know. How did that poll contribute to your perspective on art's ability to assist with healing from collective trauma as a community? Well, I go and visit the poll, check it out once in a while, and, and we're we're actually doing a little bronze disc that's going to surround the base. We're doing that right now, actually, just getting contracting it out. The artist from Musqueam is making the piece and we're going to have that put around the base but when i go and see the pole there's always offerings mm -hmm. put at the base of the pole and uh, so native people are going there and and making offerings to to that time in their life i guess or their parents life or their brother's life you know what i mean yeah. and uh, so they're they're honoring that their ancestors by doing that and it's it makes me happy that it's being used like that. And it brings back that those memories to the surface and memory of all those people that are gone and what they went through. Like I said, it was a real tough project because people come forward and talk about nobody in those days ever thought about going against the church. They wouldn't do it. But then as I was growing up, uh, getting older, I started hearing the odd peep, somebody saying something here in this part of the country and then someone else here. Then it started getting louder and louder and people talking about those days at residential school. And uh, it was amazing to feel them starting to support each other and, and talking about the truth and what had happened at these schools. My grandfather went and he said, I didn't want to teach us anything. They just wanted us to, to work. There's gluing shoes together and stuff like that. It's like free labor for them too. Right. They, which is like the prison system in the states now it's just yeah, a bunch yeah. of free labor yeah well you know they treated our people like that and we broke those bonds now we're starting to realize how, what they had done to us designed putting us down and away in a sense out of the picture and just to get at our lands and 
all that. That's all it was, economics mm-hmm. and stuff. And really, and uh, but we're we're learning. We're we're here today, and we're we're together, and we're moving forward spiritually, yeah. bringing stuff back into our lives from the past. And we live today, but we're still connected. And we're pulling it forward, and we're using it in our lives, and we're supporting other tribes. Other tribes supporting us. You know, it's it's bigger than just our tribe, our village, mm-hmm. or you know, as a people. And so it's 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 really nice to to be part of that, you know. And then then COVID hits us. It's like a big kick in the ass in a sense. Like yeah, it's like whoa, and it slowed down a lot of things. But that slowed down a lot of things is good for the mother nature, you know. And, uh, mm-hmm. Gives it a chance to breathe and for us to see what the heck we're doing. Yeah, and it's us. It's our future, our gen, our future generations. You know, and they have to live with what we're doing today and we we got a good gang of people coming forward and they want to go green you know education the people are going to university coming out of their green mm-hmm. instead of just ripping it apart and creating all this pollution you know yeah we can do it we can do it i believe it yeah well i mean i guess covid has obviously slowed down travel for everybody which is definitely good for the planet but prior to that your your work had been exhibited from everywhere from the Louvre and Paris to a solo show in Singapore how did you go about balancing being a chief in such an important part of your community at home and then also getting out into the world raising awareness and respect for the incredible art of your people well, I'm lucky I can get out there and uh, be part of that. You know, I, vi- I do visit my ancestral pieces at different museums whenever I'm near London, you know, up in uh, Scotland and things. I try to visit our ancestors all the time. Mm-hmm. I will sing songs for them and stuff. And it's just so wonderful to be part of that. But I can do that. And a lot of people can't. Yeah. And so they can't get out there. And some of them can, though. You know, some people have traveled and studied and visit the pieces and uh, so it's wonderful when they can but that's one of my responsibilities is to carry on with that and with respect to and do it for our ancestors and for people our people and other people and have fun with that you know and and because you get to meet a lot of nice people yeah also in this world and and there's a lot of good people out there you know, yeah. doing good things and amazing things and to meet them and be part of that is because of because of what I do and what we're doing. We're connected that way, too. You can talk to them one on one and beautiful. I, I appreciate the trust that people have in me, trusting me to do my work and what I'm going to end up with in the end. And they've been patient and they will wait. And there it is. Mm-hmm. And they know they're going to get something nice. And so I'm really thankful about that in my life. And, these connections, like I say, my career is still blasting off in a sense, and I'm quite happy that it's going like that. And yeah. the COVID kind of centers me a little more, and so, but things are still happening. And I'm one of the lucky ones, and I know there's a lot of people out there that aren't doing too well, uh, having a hard time and and stuff. And I, I feel for them, but I don't see too much of that because I'm here on our lovely lands and kind of hiding out here and. Uh, uh, we're doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the seas. We have our seas here. And so as a fortress, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the biggest moat in the world. <laughs> you got to have a boat to get around. <laughs> exactly. 
What what has it been like to mentor young carvers through through your career, and how do you find them? I just grab them in a sense. I yeah. see somebody, I ask them if they're interested in working for me, and most times uh, they want to work for me and uh, put them to work. Mm-hmm. We have to work. Nothing's free, you know. It's all about work, doing the work, and learning that way. You know, you can talk to somebody and give them advice and and things like that, and but it's doing it. That, sets it you figure it all out when you're doing it so you start learning when you repeat something so when they're working for me when we're doing something here it's their first time doing something and then the next time they're doing sort of the same thing and then it becomes repeat Mm -hmm. then they start learning how to set it in there and stuff and so we work on big projects so you do an eye then you do another eye yeah then you do another so it, it becomes sort of like repeat then they get the movement with their tools and things. So it's 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 a wonderful thing to get people that are interested in wanting to do the work because it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of heavy work too. And and so it builds you up sort of, but you're and you're sweating away sometimes and, and uh so you can't be scared of work to do this kind of work because it, it's hard work. Yeah. But I don't look at it like that. I just look at it as what I do. But I call it work for others to understand, you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's the hope of a of a creative career and calling is that you're working without it really being work, right? Yeah, and it's day and night. Yeah. So I don't put people say how many hours does it take to do that? No, I say well, just over ten thousand years. <laughs> I can't do that to myself. I can't put the hours. I'll give you a guesstimate on how long it's going to take, and then I'll give her help. Mm-hmm. You know, who like heck to try to make it. To that date and uh because it's pretty tough once you're in there you 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 want to spend more time on this to make it come around or whatever so it's all about guessing yeah in your time and i won't say that's how many hours it's going to take because i don't want to do that to myself i might not do it you know what i mean mm-hmm. like have that feeling in there like that i don't i just want to do it and then i'll pay the guys i'll give them so many hours a day and that's how you can kind of gauge time on how long it took to from hour and wages mm-hmm. of them. But I'll put in more time, you know, figuring it out. And yeah. Dreaming about it, figuring things out while you're sleeping, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you get ideas in your dreams. Yeah, I do. And uh, also answers, mm-hmm. you know, problems there and trying to figure it out and they'll pop into your mind while you're dreaming or, you know, at night like that. Wake up with it, the answer. And not all the time, but it does happen. And, uh, I look forward to that because that's you know, usually the strength, mm-hmm. the stronger answer. Otherwise, you figure it out. Answers itself, you carry on, you know, things answer itself. Yeah. I was reading about the etymology of the word inspiration and the original inspirare means to breathe into because the ancients believed that ideas were breathed into us through a divine source. So yeah, I, I hear you. I love that idea and I love that, you know, maybe when when we're sleeping and our, our conscious is is switched off, we have a little bit more access to that. Oh yeah. Yep. No, I hear you on that. I was thinking about this the other day, like how I was every once in a while I'll pop into a piece of mine that I've forgotten about. And I look at it and it's like, oh and it's like looking at something new and it's I did that. Ah, oh, you know, yeah. then it starts bringing back the old memories. But at that point, you're looking at it as an object, you know, like I'm studying it sort of, 
hey, I did that. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. It's like part of this this connection of you're just part of it all. Like you're plugged in in a way, and you're doing this work and uh, you know, subconsciously and active that way. And it's a collaboration with the unseen. Well, you know, because of that, you you have the right to talk to any artist in this world face to face, one on one. You know what I mean? You're doing something. They're doing something. So you can talk to each other and enjoy that connection and have some fun with it because we're all that we're kind of connected in those ways, right? You're in that, like you're saying, that that space or or that energy or or the ancients or whatever making you do this. You know, it's like your job or we're coworkers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I have to do it, you know, I because I can. I have to do it. Yeah. And and there's so many other things to to fool around with. Like I can do so many other things in, in the art world and that, but I won't because my pieces take a long time. And I don't want to fiddle around like that because I'm taking time away from creating stuff that I want to create, you know, like my pieces, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like that. I I I'd rather just stick to my stuff because it all takes time. Yeah. And you only have so much time in this world. And uh, I want to do my stuff and hang in there until I can, where they peel me away from my work, stiff with Rick and Mortis, you know, and plump, they'll peel away. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> yeah, we should all be so lucky, right? Yeah, that's the dream, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been really wonderful to grow up around your work and know you personally. And now just to be able to to hear about your history was such an honor. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for this chance to chat to you and uh, meet you as an older person. It's been a wonderful time. So thank you. And that, beautiful people, concludes this episode of The Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow The Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.